hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I've talked to many people over the last couple months, and I've decided to do a dedicated report on my Joe Rogan experience. Now, early in December, I went on the Joe Rogan show, and I drove from Dallas down to Austin, went to his studio, met his team, who's absolutely wonderful. And then Joe and I went through a three-hour interview, a nonstop interview. The events that took place afterwards were nothing short of remarkable in terms of media, social media, the uh, U.S. viewership and worldwide viewership of what happened to the Joe Rogan experience. And I wanted to explain the history of this. Uh, Joe Rogan is a podcaster who has over time with his uh, show, which is a dedicated three-hour interview, developed an extraordinary following. His following is larger than that of mainstream media, larger than that of almost every TV show that exists. And it's interesting because the average age of his audience is 24 years old. And, uh, you know, it's my impression that these are highly intelligent, patient, careful people who are willing to listen to a three-hour interview. And over time, what's happened with the Joe Rogan experience is that it has been uh, it has been uh, uh, analyzed and evaluated and translated to different languages. It's really extraordinary. Joe Rogan, uh, as a former comedian, uh, has really evolved as a very intelligent, careful, perceptive journalist, and he asks good questions. Now his Political views are in the open. He tends to be more on the moderate to liberal side. And he is known to invite people to the microphone across the entire political spectrum. And he's taken people from all walks of life. And COVID-19, early on, he took Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Brett Weinstein on for a dual interview. And they went over the rationale for the use of ivermectin. I think most of the discussion was on ivermectin. This was of interest to Joe. He ultimately himself developed COVID-19 and received the McCullough protocol. He received sequence multidrug therapy with uh, nutraceutical supplements, uh, ivermectin. He did receive monoclonal antibodies and he got through the illness uh, fine. Now his friend Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, subsequently developed COVID-19 and Aaron Rodgers, who did not take the vaccine because of concerns over safety, also went through the McCullough protocol and resolved his illness uh, quickly and got back on the field. And both Joe Rogan and Aaron Rodgers had tweeted, and Aaron Rodgers, in fact, on the Pat McAfee uh, podcast had actually mentioned he received the McCullough protocol. So Joe had reached out to me about a month prior to my interview and asked me to come down to Austin. I told him I was busy. I needed to find time. And I had prepared 
a slide set. I have a slide set now that has well more than 100 scientific slides. It was the base slide file that I used for the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons final lecture, the closing lecture at their annual scientific meeting in October in Pittsburgh, 2021. And so I brought that slide file down. I sent it to Joe's producers ahead of time, as well as with separate image files that I wanted to show up on the screen if it came up. And when I uh, sat down in the studio, I told Joe, I said, listen, this is just going to be a scientific review. Uh, I told him I don't really have any strong political views one way or the other. I tend to be a moderate, kind of middle-of-the-road uh, person politically. And uh, Joe at, at times has uh, dropped the F-bomb and, and smoked marijuana. I told him I uh, would refrain from both of those activities. And we'll just go over the scientific data. I wore sport coat and tie. I may be one of the few people who go on the show formally. As a doctor, I carry myself with uh, a degree of formality that others may not, but I just feel it's appropriate. I think my patients and others really expect it. So I pulled out my computer and I went over the slides in response to his questions. Now, he led with the journalism. And what people have told me is that this is one of the few interviews where he uh, spoke less. In fact, he spoke. his spoken words are considerably less than of other interviews because the information was so compelling. And as I presented it, I just let the data speak for itself. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to play a few clips from the Joe Rogan experience and then a few clips regarding the reaction to the Joe Rogan experience. So you can get a sense of, of what we talked about. Now, we covered a lot of tenets of early treatment. Joe wanted to start out with hydroxychloroquine. We worked through the drugs. And the transcript that was generated, generated uh, indicated that the most frequently used term was monoclonal antibodies. But the blowback that happened to the Joe Rogan interview uh, was less about early treatment and far more about comments on the vaccine. So let's pick up on some comments regarding the vaccines and vaccine efficacy. And I have my computer out and I'm pointing to the data. You'll hear me cite it. Individuals, is it more long lasting? Yes. The best paper to look at that is by um, Nordstrom and colleagues, Sweden, 1.6 million pairs of vaccinated, unvaccinated. The outcome is symptomatic COVID-19 infection, not hospitalization and death. Moderna starts out at a month at 92% vaccine efficacy. I'm sorry, Pfizer starts out at 92% vaccine efficacy and it drops off to 23% after six months. Moderna starts out at 96% and it drops down to 69%. And now we have 22 studies showing that the vaccine efficacy basically markedly diminishes after six months. That's the reason why all the authorities have agreed we have to give boosters at six months. And the, the, the groups that do the worst, and this has been published, are those who are immunocompromised. So the immunocompromised people worry about them the most, but the bottom line is they get the least benefit of the vaccines. They get the least benefit of the vaccine. They're the people we worry about the, the most, and they're also the people that we don't criticize their choices because the particularly the obese ones. We don't say, which I think they should have said right off the bat. Well, interesting, uh, uh, immunocompromised by the CDC wouldn't include the obese, so it includes people. Now, Joe makes a common error that they think immunocompromised represents some common disease state like obesity or diabetes or pregnancy. According to the FDA, CDC, and other regulatory bodies, immunocompromised really implies something really serious. Somebody, for instance, with 
chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or pulmonary fibrosis, uh, who's requiring 20 milligrams or more of prednisone a day, which is a lot chronically, or an individual who's received a transplant and is on chronic immunosuppressants, typically two or three or, or more immunosuppressants. Those are people who are immunocompromised. There's some rare inherited uh, immune compromised states, T cell and antibody states, but they're very rare. Most common uh, uh, illness, which would be considered immunocompromised according to vaccine standards, would be somebody chronically on prednisone. But what Joe's pointing out is that we don't criticize people's choices just for general comorbidity. So for instance, if someone is obese and has poor fitness and has developed a type 2 diabetes and other problems, uh, we don't look at them pejoratively. We take care of each and every patient. They've made a series of choices that have increased their vulnerability to COVID-19. And um, it's very important in medicine for people to understand that we cannot apply a filter of judgment. It's very, very important. I mean, and that's what he was getting to in that uh, question. I thought it was I thought it was perceptive. Now, Joe, like a lot of people in the media and in sports, has a particular interest and concern regarding myocarditis or heart inflammation, uh, which is one of the official warnings on the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And so because it's officially recognized as a problem caused by the vaccines, Myocarditis is uh, in many ways in the open. Uh, it, it is something that's uh, free to discuss. All stakeholders agree that the vaccines cause heart inflammation, uh, manifest as heart damage. And uh, there's now over 200 peer-reviewed publications on myocarditis in the literature and growing. And in fact, this week, I provided some commentary on two fatal cases, which I'll share with you in just a minute. But let me give you this clip from uh, Joe on myocarditis. Failure and worsening. My fear is some of these kids who develop myocarditis will be in a 13% category where they have progressive left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure. So the myocarditis they're experiencing right now is damaged heart tissue and that, that damaged heart tissue is not going to heal and that it in fact might get worse. The estimates are, and again, I would, I'm applying data from other forms of myocarditis before COVID. Yes. And COVID looks like a pretty severe form of it, to be honest with you, because it's putting 86% of the kids in the hospital. You know, there's myocarditis that we actually don't hospitalize. We can treat myocarditis and myopericarditis in the office, but these kids are sick enough to be hospitalized. I'm inferring that it's severe uh, forms of it. Uh, this estimate from this paper would be 13% risk of, in these kids, of developing heart failure or you know, needing things like um, ICDs, heart failure, oral drugs, later on cardiac transplant or cardiac death. When you say cardiac transplant, you're talking about a heart transplant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read, we, we reviewed a, a horrible case of a 19-year-old girl who was uh, vaccinated and wound up having um, a heart attack, uh, heart failure, heart transplant, and then because of the immunocompromising drugs that they put her on to accept the transplant, um, she got pneumonia and died. So you can see how Joe, uh, before ever talking to me, I'm probably the first cardiologist he's ever had on the show, is interested in this. He's following this. He knew about a fatal case of myocarditis. Now, it was fatal 
uh, because it got so severe that the case that he's describing required cardiac transplantation and then had a post-transplantation death. But the point he's making is the patient never would have developed heart failure or gotten to the point of needing cardiac transplantation if didn't have the exposure of the vaccine and vaccine-induced myocarditis. Now, to show you how relevant this is and, and how contemporary, let me just play a brief click, cl a clip from this week on the major news uh, about how Joe Rogan and I have really focused on myocarditis and how important this is to what's happening to Americans and people across the world right here, right now. It's tragic. Just days after getting their second COVID-19 vaccine, two teenage boys died in their sleep. Medical experts have been investigating what happened and have now released their report. An epidemiologist says it adds to a body of evidence that confirms Pfizer's vaccine can lead to death in children. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. To attend class in some parts of the country, kids need to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The federal government says they're safe, but gives them warning labels of what could lead to death. Uh, this myocarditis warning that is out on Pfizer Moderna is very serious. Epidemiologist Peter McCullough says this in light of a new report. Its authors investigated the cases of two teenage boys from different states. Both of them had received second doses of the Pfizer vaccine, only to die a few days later in their sleep. McCullough says that in his view, the study confirms that Pfizer's vaccines led to the deaths of the teenagers. That's the conclusion now, and it's the conclusion of several reports in the peer-reviewed literature. This isn't the only one. So it's clear that our FDA warnings on these vaccines are valid and justified, and these reports indicate in some cases it's fatal. The report was published by the College of American Pathologists, which is considered the largest organization of board-certified pathologists. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, lists the myocarditis warning on its website for both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines, but no mention that myocarditis could lead to death. We contacted the CDC, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. So you can appreciate from that report, which was filed February 15, 2022, that a suggestion is certainly for the label or the, um, the consent forms to be updated with the warning that the myocarditis, which happens in young people, can be fatal. So a brief summary of myocarditis, there are now over 200 papers. It happens with Pfizer and Moderna, and the peak age group is age 18 to 24, so it's consenting college age kids, uh, men 90% and women 10%, and the risk extends all the way up until age 50, as published by Rose and myself in Current Problems of Cardiology, but there's a recent report where, in fact, there's been some men in the over uh, age 60 who have developed the problem. The concerns are the heart inflammation may not heal and ultimately uh, lead to chronic heart failure, uh, but more acutely, this acute inflammation could result in sudden death in these two boys that died in Connecticut and that were summarized by the coroner and uh, other universities were involved in this high-level report in a, a very high-quality pathology journal. The issue is the two boys died at home. Uh, there were no warnings. They didn't seek medical care. The parents didn't take them in 
Now, there was no opportunity for CPR or resuscitation. So the great concern here is that there may be cases like this where there isn't sufficient warning to get help. Uh, so the parents feel helpless and must be absolutely devastated. And obviously the young men have needlessly lost their lives since COVID-19 is a mild illness. It doesn't uh, have severe manifestations like this in young men. And, um, and I think Joe Rogan and I really uh, frame that appropriately. It just so happens that, you, you know, here we are two months later and we have uh, fatal cases reporting in the literature and uh, highlighted in the news. Now, far and away, the most contentious part of any interview so far that I've ever had on COVID-19 vaccination has to do with the outcome of death and death that occurs after uh, vaccination. So as we sit here today, it's February 17th, 2022. I'm filing the McCullough Report. Yesterday, for an interview with ABC News, I specifically did a direct query of the U.S. CDC Vaccine Universal Event Reporting System. I did my own query, and I queried for the checkbox of death on the VAERS form only with the COVID-19 vaccines, and that's basically what I did. And I'll read for you the data uh, that the CDC U.S. VAERS system indicates is current through February 4th, 2022. On the checkbox of death, the number is 12,670 individuals. There were 6,035 fatal cases with Pfizer, 5,200 cases with Moderna, and 1,391 with Johnson & Johnson. 44 cases, it was unknown what vaccine the patient took. And then I went to the OpenVAERS data overlay. So OpenVAERS data is a query service that's privately held by a computer program. It's available on the internet and it queries VAERS, but it does more than just uh, query on the checkbox of death or not. It queries through the entire vignette, anywhere on the form, looking for death, fatal, mortality, uh, terms that could be conservative. That is a conservative um, scan, if you will, for anything that hints at death. And so it generates a much larger number, but it's felt to be conservative because what can happen is the checkbox may not be checked, or in fact, it's not checked initially, and then a vignette is updated with the patient dying, and in fact, um, the original form may miss it. But in the open VAERS data overlay, also updated through February 4th, 2022, the number there is 23,615 deaths. And in the FAQ for the Open VAERS system, the, uh, uh, the FAQ indicates that about 90% of the cases are domestic U.S. cases and 10% are uh, non-domestic cases. I recently appeared on the Dave Janda show from Ann Arbor. Dave had the documents that so far have been released in the federal lawsuit against Pfizer and the FDA, uh, the first uh, bundle of pages. And Dave indicated, and it will be on his show, that Pfizer knew about, within the first few months, Pfizer knew about 1,200 deaths approximately. Uh, so these mortality numbers are very high. And so what everyone asks, everyone asks, say, okay, the deaths are high after the vaccine, but are they really due to the vaccine? And I had to walk through with Joe standard epidemiologic criteria 
for assessment of causality. Because when someone dies and there's no autopsy, we can't possibly know if they really died of the vaccine. Now, the two boys in that last newsreel, they had autopsies. The autopsies clearly showed the cause of death was myocarditis. But in the vast majority of these deaths, there's no autopsy obtained. So listen to this important interchange. We know the spike protein is dangerous. A paper by Ovolio shows it damages heart muscle cells, pericytes. The FDA has warnings on the vaccines for myocarditis or heart damage. So this is biologically cohesive that the vaccines could damage the human body and cause death. So the biological plausibility is there. We know that it's a strong signal, so we have that. We know that it's internally consistent in the VAERS system, meaning there are other non-fatal events like heart attacks, blood clots, myocarditis. And now it's externally consistent. The same pattern is seen in the, in the yellow card system in the UK through the MHRA, and it's also seen in the uterus system in Europe. So what I've laid out for you is we've fulfilled what's called the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. That means it's it. I'm an epidemiologist by training. This is my line of work. I'm telling you, for a large number of individuals, the vaccine has caused death. This was the most contentious part of this. I can tell you, Joe reached back to me um, on <clears throat> the issue of mortality, and there was some editing by Spotify. And Joe said, because we weren't clear enough on it, and I had brought forward the Ron Kostoff analysis published in Toxicology Reports, which had indicated that uh, is a risk-benefit analysis, and the Kostoff analysis indicated that at age 65, one is more likely to die of the vaccine than actually take their chances with COVID and die of COVID, even though death and under both circumstances is very rare. And why is that? Because when someone takes the vaccine, it's in their body. You can't get it out. It is a committed step. Whereas if someone defers on the vaccine, they may or may not get COVID. In fact, many people are successful in never getting COVID or uh, keeping the exposure low enough where they get a low inoculum and end up with a, a mild case. And some people have uh, inherent resistance to getting to se severe disease. We've heard about uh, blood types, for instance. So uh, blood type O being quite favorable, blood type A positive being unfavorable. Uh, there are more and more data suggesting the microbiome in the nasopharynx. Some people have the very favorable bacteria that can fight off the virus in the nose and they just don't get systemic disease. So it's not a direct trade-off of die with a vaccine or die of COVID. One, because of determinism and according to the cost-off analysis, is far more likely to die of the vaccine than they are taking their chances with COVID. Now, to my understanding, I don't, that didn't make it into the Joe Broken interview because of some lack of clarity. Uh, however, we interviewed uh, for a full three hours, and I noticed the entire duration of the interview that's been posted that I'm going through was two hours and 45 minutes, so the majority of it uh, went in there. Now, I wanted to pick up on uh, a challenge statement that uh, part of the controversy here in the Joe Rogan interview was the fact that myself and some doctors in our circles uh, have been brought up as uh, dissidents or people who do not agree with the narrative. And I can tell you, I have a problem with the word narrative. Narrative means uh, telling a story. And in medicine, we don't tell a story. 
what we do in medicine is we build a giant base of medical information through the course of our training. I, from the time I graduated from high school to the time I was fully baked as an attending physician, that was 17 years. That is a long period of time to build a base of medical knowledge. And then what we do from there is we see and examine patients and take care of them, but we also survey the medical literature, go to lectures, have interchange, scientific interchange, and we continue to have what's called lifelong learning. We build our base of knowledge over time, and we use inferential skills. That is, we are always seeking the truth, and we know through the data and each and every paper, we don't completely have the truth revealed, but we are gathering pieces of evidence that continue to have us progress towards uh, medical truth in terms of what is going on uh, from screening, diagnosis, prognosis, management, and, uh, and ultimately uh, population health. So uh, we're using these, uh, what's called statistical inference, which is very different than engineering, which relies on deductive, deductive thinking. Inferential thinking means you never know the truth, but you're gathering pieces of information. And then in the process of being a physician or another healthcare provider, we use basically principles of the art and science of medicine, that there is an art to it. There is an intuition, medical hunches. These actually do play a role in addition to synthesis of data and application of uh, a whole variety of sources of evidence from preclinical and clinical and population health. So having said that, Joe came out right away and asked the question about um, about this challenge of, of how could you uh, challenge a, a narrative or potentially uh, have a situation of being canceled. Let's listen in. Purposely targeting experts and doctors that have opinions that differ from the approved narrative. You are one of those experts. Well, maybe because I looked in the camera and gave a wink in one of the interviews, I think it was Tucker Carlson, where I said, bring it on. And this is what I mean about this. This is a giant game of chicken. And the bottom line is the people who win are the people with the truth. The truth in the end is kryptonite to everything out there. So with that, what we'll do is we'll pick up on the other side. I want to play a few more clips of Rogan, and then we'll get into the blowback and some of the, uh, the critique and response. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCulley Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement is a combination of calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four stages of the human sleep cycle. Fall asleep, stay asleep, get a deep sleep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. This is very important. So there are combinations that address in this single product the ability to fall asleep easily. There are others that help the body lower the body temperature, which is normal during sleep, and still others that cause a deep and lasting sleep. That's what so many people are after. And finally, interestingly, combinations that help creativity boosting during REM sleep. I can tell you, I use this one personally. It's in a microgel formula. I had a patient this last week who has long COVID syndrome and she has terrible GI side effects and she has GI hypomotility and said, listen, she's not even tolerating pills or these chalky, large vitamins. I said, go to Healthy Cell, get the Healthy Cell line. We use it in post-COVID syndrome patients 
And this product particularly will help sleep get on track. Now I tell people, listen, take it every night and do so for months and months. The body likes regular administration of any exogenous substance. Don't take it on and off. It's not like a sleeping pill. This is something you take every night to get high quality sleep back into your day. And you feel better during the day after having better quality sleep at night. So go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Invincible American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Because of COVID-19, Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, Taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're going through my interview, the McCullough-Joe Rogan interview that took place early in December of 2021 that generated uh, so much uh, interest, feedback, blowback, if you will. And I wanted to play just a few more segments on the Joe Rogan interview. One of the questions that Joe asked, which I thought was really good, is why have so many people taken the vaccine and they've done perfectly well with it and and that they think the vaccine is fine and therefore everybody should take the vaccine? Let's have a listen. It's over 200 million people, I believe, have been vaccinated. That's an enormous amount of human beings. Most of them are fine. Is that an accurate statement? You know, it's just, again, just like the respiratory infection. 
you know, we've had 146 million people who've had the respiratory infection, less than 1% died. Right, but the ones that have gotten the injection and died or got myocarditis versus the ones who got the injection and nothing happened at all. What's the difference? What it's happened? Just Again, just like the respiratory infection. Remember, you and I had the respiratory infection. We're perfectly fine. We're sitting here talking. 99% of people who got the respiratory infection are fine. 99% of people who got the vaccine are fine. So we're 200 million people who got the vaccines, and we have about 1 million people injured. So it's about, it's the same. They're, the, they're identically the same. It's the same concept. So what do you think is causing the damage oh, in the 1%? Just like with the respiratory infection, it's all about susceptibility. So I can tell you in the VAERS query I did on death yesterday, and I came up with 12,670 deaths that our CDC is telling us happened, that they've certified. Uh, there is a steep age gradient, and the age of death uh, is clearly uh, over 65, that there's relatively few deaths below age 65. And then over 65 uh, is a breakpoint. People uh, go on Medicare at age 65. They start to develop medical problems or have them uh, become more manifest to require attention. And so I can tell you, I think that's a big part of the susceptibility is age and other medical problems. So let me just read for you on death of these uh, 12,670 deaths that the CDC VAERS system is telling us through February 4th, 2022. Um, I can tell you that the age brackets all the way up to under 65 have less than 10% of the total population in them. But let me read from you above that, age 65 to 79, there's 33.2% of the deaths are in that group. Age um, 80 plus, there's another 33.4% in that group. So that's 66%. And then uh, there's a small group where the age is not reported, 10.75%. I can tell you right now, and it's clear, that two-thirds of the deaths that have happened in VAERS are in people over age 65. Now the question is, is that cohesive? Is that, does that go along with anything else that we can possibly know about VAERS? So let's look at permanent disability. With permanent disability, the CDC VAERS system, so these people obviously survived an injury after the vaccine. There's 12,413 cases of permanent disability. They're more skewed uh, towards a normal distribution so uh, with that, uh, all ages below 30 are less than 10% in each category, but age 30 to 39, 13.7%, 40 to 49, 17.5%, 50 to 59, 20.7%, 60 to 64, 10.3%, and 75 to 65 to 75, 79 years, is 21.6%. So what I'm telling you for disability, it tends to hit more of the people in the working age group. That may be the reason why they reported disability is indeed they're working and they have to fill out disability. But uh, it does skew towards the older population. And then the last thing to mention is hospitalization. Who's winding up in the hospital after taking a vaccine? Again, all groups are less than 10% except for 
uh, ages 50 to 59, 13.5% of all hospitalizations fall in that group. Uh, ages uh, 65 to 79, 30.5% fall in that group. And then uh, over age 80, 17.4% of all hospitalizations in that group. So the hospitalizations and disabilities are what's called cohesive. That is, they stick together with the observation of, of death, that death is not just a stochastic thing that's not associated with anything else, uh, that we have these, and these are large numbers, you no know, more than 50 deaths in any medicinal product will be pulled off the market. So it's whether it's, it, we're debating 12,000 cases or 23,000 cases, it's way beyond 50. It's way beyond the limit where something uh, should be pulled off the market. So age is obviously a big factor, but Joe asked, you know, what are the other determinants of death? That's basically what he was asking about. So I wanted to bring up this paper by Liu, L-I-U, and it was published in Cell Discovery in 2021. And the title of the paper is Comprehensive Investigations Revealed Consistent Pathophysiologic Alterations After Vaccination with COVID-19 Vaccines. And there was a detailed analysis of uh, a whole variety of clinical and laboratory features after someone takes a vaccine. And they clearly picked up unfavorable trends on labs. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But I want to read the, the statement and the conclusion of the paper in Cell Discovery. This is in the Nature line of journals. And it says, altogether, our study recommends additional caution when vaccinating people with pre-existing clinical conditions, including diabetes, electrolyte imbalance, renal dysfunction, and coagulation disorders. So already we're starting to see the pictures of the puzzle come together. Not everybody is going to die with the COVID-19 vaccines. Thankfully, it's a small, small number. However, the number is way too large to be acceptable. And this paper and others are suggesting there are determinants. We can actually figure this out. So if we had an analysis on death, an epidemiologic and clinical analysis on death, it could be figured out. And I think even with the current vaccines in terms of mortality, it's possible that we, through exclusion, restrictive sampling, and other methods, that we can make the vaccine program safer. But without any acknowledgement that the vaccines are actually causing death, we're not going to see that type of investigation. And the FDA and CDC hold all the data. So all we can do is basically hint around this issue of death and create this general warning that people need to know that in fact they can die after COVID-19 vaccination. And we know from two papers, one by Rose, one by McLaughlin, that 50% of deaths occur within 48 hours and 80% of deaths occur within a week. So when it happens, it's pretty quick. The compromise of the immune system that comes about from obesity, is it scalable? Is it like if you are 100 pounds overweight, is it much worse than if you are 40 pounds overweight? It's clearly scalable. Mm. Um, so that's something that should have been discussed pu publicly along with the drugs, along with the possible early treatment options. Well, you know, if we could have, in a perfect world, we if we addressed all four pillars of the pandemic response, if we did what Bangladesh did and just start actually doing the oral nasal hygiene approach. You know, Bangladesh, Is that what they did right away? That's where the trials were done. They're almost down to zero COVID. There's 160 million people that are on top of each other over there. They're down to almost zero COVID because they've got the discipline down 
to when they go out in public settings. When you went out with that guy with a headache, uh, when you came home, just do the oral nasal decontamination, you would have knocked down the viral particles enough where your body probably would have fought off the rest and you don't get the syndrome. Do you know my patients right now, when they're coming down with COVID, we actually blast with the dilute povidone iodine in the nose and the mouth, we blast um, every four hours while awake and we knock down the viral load, particularly with Delta. Delta has 251 to 1,000 times viral load in the nose. So it's replicating like mad and we can knock it down and reduce the amount of viral uh, um, uh, inoculum in the human body. I personally had COVID, Joe. It was in the fall of 2020. I didn't know about this. It baked in my nose and mouth for about three days. And I sat there, I did nothing. I was scrambling for oral drugs. Why didn't I knock it down with some type of treatment in the nose? You know, chronic sinusitis patients have been using neti pots or they've been using saline rinses. All we have to do is add a little peroxide or a little bit of iodine to that and knock down the viral load. I could have had a much milder syndrome. So that would be one way to approach it um, that you feel is very effective. This other protocol that you have established is another great way to approach it. Um, are there... Are there people that are in agreement or disagreement with you that you, like disagreement in particular, that you respect and you, you, you see some merit in what they're saying? Well, the disagreement would be don't treat patients. That's it. Think about it. Well, when I published the paper in the American Journal of Medicine, so I was the first person in the world to put a stake in the ground saying that we can treat COVID-19 at home and prevent hospitals. Has anyone said to you, don't treat patients? I mean, so... The letters of the editor came in, Joe. There was about six of them. They came in from Duke, from Menage, from, uh, I think, McGill in Montreal, from Europe, South America. They said, Dr. McCullough, you can't treat COVID patients. It's like, what? They said, you can't treat... You don't have enough evidence. You can't do this. You could cause harm. And I, you know, my, I, at the, well, you know, Joe Alpert is the editor of American Journal of Medicine. He let this go on. Every letter came back and I said, overcome your fear and let's break the grip of therapeutic nihilism and let's start treating patients to prevent hospitalization and death. And in, in our circles, there is no discussion. You know, I, I was in the endowed lecture at Harvard two years ago. It's fanfare, me and my wife, all these pictures, everything's wonderful. Do you know not a single institution has invited me to lecture on the early treatment of COVID-19? Remember, Harvard doesn't treat people. Neither is Mayo Clinic. Neither is UCLA. Neither is a medical school here in Austin. They don't treat a single patient. They have nothing to offer. When Didier Rialt set up his treatment program in Marseille, he put out camp, uh, tents outside the medical center there. They tried to shut him down. He goes, listen, I'm going to treat patients because they're sick. They have, you know, Marseille, if you've ever been there, it's all these retired uh, older uh, French citizens, you know, pretty well to do. They're down on the French Riviera. They were getting sick with COVID-19. He opened up an outpatient treatment center and he started treating people and started gathering his data. They tried to shut him down. They took hydroxychloroquine. They made it over the counter. If he was, you know, there's been doctors, there was a doctor arrested in, in South Africa for using ivermectin for crying out loud. You know, this is... There has been suppression, and where we know things really got obtuse is when we came to the monoclonal antibodies. These monoclonal antibodies, they really work. And let me tell you what, we've got three terrific ones now. We have Lily is back with a combination of bamlanivimab and urtisivimab, which is wonderful. We have Regeneron, which uh, Trump received, which is a combination of imdimab and carisivimab. And now GSK, since May, 
has has sochorivimab. Sochorivimab is actually antibodies directed against the glycoprotein, so it's going to be basically uh, um, resistant to any mutant strains. These antibodies in general, all the studies show, given early, have at least a 50%, if not an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. I, I use them. I use them every day, Joe. Yeah, I took it when I got sick, and I think it's one of the primary reasons why I got better so quickly. And you, you, you got, and what Aaron Rodgers got, and what President Trump got is basically how I drew it up for America and the world. And and you know that science is going the right way when people like myself and Pierre Corey and Didier Rialt and what have you were working independently, and we come up with the same conclusions. You know, P Pierre and I did not recircle did not actually come to much later. And that's exactly what you want to see. You want to see external validity, people working independently coming up with the same ideas. So what is the resistance to the monoclonal antibodies? The, the resistance has been, uh, in a sense, uh, an opacity to them. Meaning, I testified in the Texas Senate in March 2021. And right ahead of me was this wonderful doctor, and she talked about her 90-year-old father who was saved by monoclonal antibodies. And I sat through six hours of self-congratulatory testimony by all these de uh, department heads in across Texas. They were talking about hand sanitizer and doing evaluations and vaccines. I got up there, and I told Quarkart, who is the um, chair of, this, of the uh, committee, is right here in Austin. I said, where are these monoclonal antibodies? Where are they? Where is the 1-800 number so we can access these monoclonal antibodies? Where is the list of treatment centers where these monoclonal antibodies are? How come we don't have billboards up there telling, telling the poor seniors where the monoclonal antibodies are? Do we stock these in nursing homes where people are getting sick? Do we even know? There is a hide-and-go-seek going on with these monoclonal antibodies. And I can tell you, um, uh, in Florida, uh, 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 there's been a big push to use monoclonal antibodies, and they've had the same problem, that there was this, in a sense, lack of government prioritization for the monoclonal antibodies. When was the last time you saw a feature in the news on these monoclonal antibodies? There's no word of them. They're wonderful uh, uh, products, Operation Warp Speed. Are they limited in any way? No. Are they, they limited? How are they produced? Well, they're produced in the same technology that we would produce Humira, and Remicade, all these are, they're called fully humanized monoclonal antibodies. And so they're produced in a method where once there's a fully humanized mouse and the code for uh, an antibody is um, uh, created in the mouse, that gene is transferred into what's called a Chinese hamster ovary suspension. And that actually produces massive quantities of the antibody. That's how they're all produced. And um, you know, anybody who's taken Humira, anybody who's taken Repatha or Praluent, they, they know what I'm talking about. And the, the point is, they're safe and effective. In medical economics in 2020, it was already disclosed in a table that we had already purchased 100 million doses of these. And we had on order 500 million doses. There are plenty of monoclonal antibodies. My point is the governments almost on purpose in the, in the local and federal state agencies are not featuring these. And let me tell you, I gave a lecture, a symposium for doctors in Amarillo. And uh, doctor symposium, Amarillo Country Club, within the last month, one doctor in the room was wearing a mask. None of us were wearing a mask. And I went over early treatment. I went over all the uh, science we talked about today. And he, he goes, listen, I'm, I'm the public health director here. And I want to tell you something, that 85% um, uh, of people uh, dying of COVID-19 in our county uh, are unvaccinated. I wanted to make that statement. 
And I said, listen, you're running the monoclonal antibody program here. How many of these deaths received monoclonal antibodies? He goes, well, I don't know that. I said, listen, the vaccines aren't treatment. The vaccines aren't treatment. The monoclonal antibodies are treatment. Do you see the, see the, see the absurdity of this? This yeah. is the mass psychosis. He is completely and totally focused on the vaccine, yet he's got the most important tool right in front of him. What I said in the Texas Senate, I said the most important thing is the sick person right in front of you. That's it. At any given time, it's way less than 1% of people are sick with COVID-19. Focus on the sick person, and then that's how we win the battle against COVID-19. Do you think that it's possible that people will wake up to the idea that there should be many approaches to this as the vaccines wane in efficacy and as people start to become more resistant to boosters? Then maybe they'll look at these things. Because what, what's confusing to people is that well, if this is all some sort of a plot by the pharmaceutical companies to make exorbitant amounts of money, why aren't they trying to make exorbitant amounts of money off the monoclonal antibodies, which are also expensive? I tell you, it's a great argument. We'll see, uh, you know, molipiravir, which is the Merck drug, which I think is going to be modestly effective. The, um, the registrational trials finally came in about a 30%. Uh, effect size, so a little less than hydroxy or ivermectin. Ivermectin as the oral drug probably has the best efficacy of the three. Uh, and I think molopiravir is going to be similar to pefipiravir. Um, we will have to see, but the point I'm making is that, listen, the monoclonal antibodies were before the vaccines. They're emergency use authorized. Yeah. They're more impressive results. You know, there's nothing to suggest that the, that the vaccines uh, can have anywhere near the treatment effect because so many people who take the vaccines don't get COVID. I have to tell you that I did this review on the Jimmy Dore show. Jimmy is a comedian himself. And we did play Dr. Domanian's um, critique from YouTube in little clips, but we played it on a fast speed just so we could get through it. So I want to be fair to Dr. Uh, Domanian, a colleague. That has good randomized control data, like say fluvoxamine which is a re, you know, repurposed SSRI antidepressant. Nobody's talking about it, and barely gets a lot of media mention. It gets some. We've talked about it. But nobody's jumping up and down about a 30% reduction in hospitalization in the randomized trial. That's a pretty well-designed trial. Um, and I think that is one of the downstream effects of people like Peter McCullough dying on the cell of hydroxychloroquine, honestly. Now, real therapeutics that could prevent some admissions, even if it's small, use it with a bunch of other stuff, with vaccination, with molnupiravir and other therapeutics that are coming out potentially if they show promise. And now people aren't talking about it. So this is a downside of this kind of misinformation. So he's saying that no one's talking about fluvoxamine or other therapeutics because you pushed hydroxychloroquine. I don't know what kind of logic that is. You know, it's I, I zero have, logic. Uh, but well, uh, you know, I'm the one who <laughs> initially um, created uh, the multi-drug protocols, now copyrighted the McCullough protocol. It was always four to six drugs. It never died on any hill of any drug. In fact, I did a seminar with Dr. Chetty from South Africa who innovated. He learned how to treat this with no hydroxychloroquine, no ivermectin. I think I have more publications on ivermectin than I do on hydroxychloroquine. And I use fluvoxamine all the time I practice. So you can tell that um, I'm a little bit um, moved by this idea that this person is trying to characterize my Joe Rogan testimony or my Joe Rogan experience, if you will, as dying on the hill of hydroxychloroquine. It was far from it. I mentioned hydroxychloroquine along with many other products. The most frequently one discussed uh, product was the monoclonal antibodies. Now here's a part of the um, Zubin Dominion review 
which uh, I, I think he embarrasses himself uh, somewhat, where he, he's trying to make the case that pharmaceutical companies can make more money from uh, drugs than they can from vaccines. And I wasn't really prepared to address the economics of uh, vaccines, but you can listen to how I navigated with Jimmy Dore. Why would they push a vaccine that it wasn't clear it was even going to work early on when they could easily spin up a ton of different therapeutics, right? So there's a real problem there. And then it's from the conspiracy standpoint, well, there's a conspiracy multinationally to, to squelch therapy. Well, that's not true because in many countries they did do therapy. Uh, and in, and, and the other thing is, how do you even coordinate that? Like, who's doing that? That's really hard. We can't even, because there's... <laughs> well, it'd be uh, the WHO, which Bill Gates funds. What are you talking about? This guy acts uh, like he doesn't know anything again. I'm in but, my but garage and I know he, this. He, I think he somehow in dreamland on uh, the word conspiracy since he mentioned it so much yes you yes, know, yes. You know, there's been a transcript that came out with me and rogan a transcript and you know what the most frequently utilized word that we used monoclonal antibodies <laughs> then early treatment you know there was none of this stuff he's talking about i mean so he's he's way off base um but but let me just say that um that a drug uh, that's considered a blockbuster drug would earn about a billion dollars in its first year, and they spend a you know you know multi billions in their own they use their own money to develop a drug multiple billion dollars, and they spend about half of the sales on this uh, half of the revenue on Salesforce, but that's a billion dollars. Pfizer in its first year and in, um, in uh, several sources can uh, can source this for you is at I believe thirty three well, billion. Here it is. Here it Second is. I'll show you. Pfizer expects $33.5 billion in vaccine revenue in 2021. So Jimmy Dore already had that sourced from Forbes magazine, July 28th, 2021 issue. So you can tell that how I'm careful with the economics. I don't know how much uh, uh, these different drug companies are making, but I knew around about $33 billion was going to be Pfizer's uh, vaccine revenue in 2021 and far exceeds the one billion that would be blockbusters. So, uh, Dr. Demanian, I think, is um, uh, having trouble with this idea that, uh, in, in fact, there was a, a suppression of early treatment. I think to favor the vaccines and the and the rich revenues they have. Now, Jimmy Dore, who's is really a wonderful comedian, it was really fun to go on his show. He finishes with a question about the Great Barrington Declaration. And I wanted to mention what the Great Barrington Declaration is and how it fits into this historical timeline of COVID-19 pandemic response. Do you subscribe to that same theory that we should vaccinate the vulnerable, the elderly, the people with comorbidities and maybe the obese, but healthy people we shouldn't? Is, is that where you're at? Well, yeah, that, don't forget the, the, his, the history of this is that I published the first pathophysiologic basis paper in August of 2020. That was the big landmark. That was the first paper that says we can treat COVID, period. And the whole literature is 55,000 papers. The Great Barrington was about a month or two later, and that was uh, Jay Bhattacharya Martin from Stanford, Martin Kaldor from Harvard, and uh, Sunitra Gupta from Oxford. And they basically said, listen, we're looking at all this. They had about six months to analyze it. They said, don't lock down none of these draconian measures just protect the seniors and it was before the vaccines and they said listen if we have a safe and effective vaccine then just use it in the seniors and i was 
And so I can tell you at this point in time, it was clear, and I made it clear to America that if we had a safe and effective vaccine, use in, its, in the seniors, those in nursing homes, nursing home workers would have been perfectly appropriate. And that's been my messaging all the way through. And then uh, it was announced that, that there should be censorship, that sponsors like Spotify should censor Joe Rogan and that, that uh, Neil Young was going to walk away from Spotify and Prince Harry and others. Interesting, Spotify carries Robert F. Kennedy's podcast, which has strong views against the vaccines and no mention of Robert F. Kennedy, but Joe Rogan appeared to be targeted. This was uh, taken all the way up to the White House. Jen Psaki, the uh, press secretary, said that Spotify should censor Joe Rogan. They said Joe Rogan uh, was spreading misinformation. You heard Joe's comments. He wasn't giving any medical opinions. I was the one uh, synthesizing. So in a sense, Joe Rogan was attacked because of me. And this kept going and going. Joe Rogan, within a few weeks, had Robert Malone on. And that amplified, again, Dr. Malone, a non-clinician, but gave all the vaccine development details and the preclinical science. Again, very factual. No opinions, no hyperbole. And this uh, went even further. And so uh, this kept going and going. And ultimately, in the press cycle, uh, Joe Rogan was attacked regarding prior statements, statements that could have been racial or, or um, biased in some other way. And he was forced to take down some issues, uh, some of his prior Joe Rogan experiences from Spotify. And, it, and he basically became the subject of attack. This came up recently because people have said, well, you know, I'm being attacked. And I was on Fox News, uh, Dan Bongino. Dan has a great... Um, a great show, and ultimately we'll be hosting Canceled in America, which I'm a guest on. But let's listen to this quick segment with uh, Dan asking me about uh, what happened. Yeah, doctor, I mean, you've become a target. They have tried to cancel you. Uh, well, you know, what What do you think is behind this? You're on the, uh, the front lines of this COVID fight. Is it they're just in a panic here because people like yourself who are not intimidated? You know, what's your next step here? Is there any recourse for people like yourself who've been attacked by these anti-science folks? I've been true to the science, Dan. I'm very careful to cite all the data when I go on national TV. When I went on Joe Rogan, you know, I had over 100 scientific slides that have been continuing medical education approved for a prior major scientific meeting. I, I prepared a month for that. Rogan was perceptive. He was intelligent. He asked good questions. And then you saw the backlash as we reviewed all the scientific data. So I let Dan know that uh, you know, I'm putting my best foot forward as a doctor and, and a scientist and simply giving the data, uh, giving valid analyses, um, clearly open to scientific discourse and discussion as we move forward. But in no way have I uh, spread misinformation and will I accept or acknowledge any type of claim or accusation there that I've spread misinformation. Clearly, I haven't. I'm just giving the data and my slides and the scientific information I review are open uh, to all who are interested. So with it, we'll close the show this week on uh, the McCullough Report. It was dedicated towards the Joe Rogan experiences that generated uh, so much interest. And thank you so much. Any of you who haven't seen it, why don't you uh, go over to Spotify and uh, have a listen to the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, he is the leading podcaster in the world for a reason. Uh, and now he's become a friend and a professional highlight in my career. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCulloch Report.